0: Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I know it says up on the screen, one another. um, But we are going to take a pause from, even though I'm using these, we're going to take a pause from our one another series that we've been doing and look at the final week before Christ's death. This week and next week, we will look at those that topic. This is I've only been preaching on a regular basis for about the last three years, but this is my favorite time of year to preach. Um, a lot of times, when this is a little little secret I'm giving you as a pastor. A lot of times, when it comes to holidays for pastors, it's hard because preaching something and Uh, We've preached the same thing a year before, and so try to make it fresh and new and and different and something that engages the uh, congregation at times can be a a challenge, but um, it's really impossible not to make the death of Jesus Christ something that doesn't excite everyone. And if it doesn't excite you, I I challenge you to really search your heart. Um, it's a hard topic to preach, and yet it's such a thrilling thing to think about that you know, Jesus Christ came to Earth because I'm a sinner. And I hope that. I hope it never gets old, <laughs> that God loves us enough that He sent Jesus Christ to die for us. The passage I want to look at this morning is actually uh, what we refer to as uh, Palm Sunday, and uh, talk about the, really the amazing events of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Have you ever anticipated something happening and watched the excitement build beyond what you expected there to be? That was the events of Palm Sunday. And Luke chapter 19 is where uh, we see that really um, this, this story of the triumphal entry appears in, in, in all of the Gospels. But I want to look at the one in Luke here and, and, uh, and, and I'll read through it. And so if you'll follow along as I read starting in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, and I will read all the way down to verse 44. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, looking, or going, up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, "'Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat.' Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You, sh- you say this, The Lord has need of it. Th- so those who were sent went away and found it just as He had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt. They sent Jesus on it. And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing, drawing near, already on the way to, down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of, of his disciples began to rejoice, praying, praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this passage. Lord, I can imagine the excitement that built as your son entered into Jerusalem. The crowd expected one thing and yet Jesus knew something else was about to take place. Something that we are very thankful for. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand the magnitude of this passage as it prepares for what is to come. Lord, we're thankful for this time. Lord, please help me as I share your word that you will give me uh, power from your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. As we look at this passage, we just need to realize kind of some background of what was taking place so you understand the events. First of all, everyone in Israel had been taught from the time they were a little child until they were an adult, they had been taught that the Messiah would one day come and He would reign as King in Jerusalem. The Old Testament makes it very clear that the coming King would come to the city of David, to the city of Jerusalem. Since the time of the Garden of Eden, they understood that one was going to come that was going to rescue them. That was going to rescue them from from their sins and rescue them from from the enemy of Satan. And they were anticipating that. Second, you need to realize that this took place during the time that was leading up to the Passover feast. The Passover was just about to begin. This was a huge celebration for the people of Israel. This celebration brought about uh, much events that were about to take place. But because of all the events that were about to take place, many people traveled to uh, Jerusalem during that time. And, and when they would come in, it just the excitement would build and, and build and build and it would fuel the fire of expectation that was there, the spiritual expectation, the messianic es- expectation of the coming Messiah that was going to come one day. Historians tell us that during the time of the Passover, it was was very common for so many people to come that it is estimated that during this time even that there was probably two to three million people that were in Jerusalem. It's a large amount of people in that small area. Over the Passover that what would happen was the lamb was slain. And just as it had been done in Exodus, remember the Passover was when God allowed his people to go free from from the 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 imprisonment by uh, the people in Egypt. And so they would they killed the lamb and they placed the, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And, and if they had that, then the, then the angel would pass over and not come in and, and kill the firstborn. So the Passover was, was a, a remembrance of that. And so they would they would kill this lamb and it was a yearly reminder to them of what God had done for them. And now in just a few days, the Lamb of God, Jesus, would be slain. Of course, the people didn't know that. Another reason that this time was would be a big deal is because Jesus had just performed many miracles and, and people had seen this, and this was, again, fueling this anticipation of Jesus coming in. It was fueling this anticipation that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. In particular, just a few days before this, Jesus had raised uh, Lazarus from the dead. An incredible thing that, that no one could imagine. And as it happens, Scripture tells us that Jews had placed their faith in Christ. Others rejected Christ, and some actually went away and went and told the Pharisees of what had taken place. And, and from that point on, Scripture says the Pharisees tried to find a way to kill Jesus. In fact, if you read, it also says that the Pharisees tried to find a way to kill Lazarus. The proof that Jesus was something other than a normal man. It was a, it was a time that was really hard for us to grasp. It's difficult for us 2,000 years removed from it to grasp the mood that was taking place in Jerusalem. It was intense. It was, it was an excitement. The people were looking forward to the Messiah and Jesus was the most likely candidate. And that moment was right as He was getting ready to head into the capital city. The people were excited. They were were pumped. They couldn't wait for the kingdom come. They couldn't wait for Him to come and release them from the rule of the Romans. Just like God had done so many years ago at the Passover the first time. The people were ready to greet Him. And I believe as we look at this story, I believe Palm Sunday gives us four ways that we can respond to Christ today. The first one we see is that they were greeting Him and we can greet Him with our obedience. If you look back at the text, look at verse 28, it says, and when He had said these things, it's a reference back to the parable that He had told uh, outside of Jericho or uh, as He was uh, entering it says there that uh, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. That went on ahead gives the idea that, that he was leading the way for the disciples and they were following along. This trip was that he was about to take, this, this journey he was about to take into Jerusalem would be the most important trip of his life. He had come for this very purpose. The disciples knew that as he walked into Jerusalem, that they were, they were actually probably a little scared. They knew, if you read the story of Lazarus, when Ra- Lazarus was raised from the dead, they did not want Jesus to go because they were afraid if Jesus went, that he was going to be taken and he was going to be killed. In fact, they said, hey, let's go with you and we'll probably die too. So they understood that the magnitude of going to Jerusalem, and so they were probably very reluctant, but Jesus was determined. So you can, you can almost picture the, the scene as Jesus begins to walk towards Jerusalem, and he's kind of pulling his disciples along. Let's go, guys. Come on. And they're going along, and he realized he had come, and so Scripture tells us, and if you read in chapter 19, the beginning, he, he is in Jericho, and he's leaving Jericho, and he's heading to Jerusalem, and, he, and as he's leaving Jericho, the Bible tells us in, in one of the other Gospels that he healed a blind man, Bartimaeus, so the excitement again is building, and and he begins this very long journey. A few weeks ago on Sunday night, I mentioned to the journey uh, of from Jerusalem to Jericho. But think about it the other way around: the, Jerus- the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem would have been a very grueling journey. It's about a 17-mile trip, and if you if you know geography of that area at all, Jericho is actually uh, really um, low. It's actually below sea level, and so, uh, and, and Jerusalem is up up on a mountain, and so they would have had to travel, and it was very hilly, very rocky, very difficult journey, and so it's not a surprise as they get closer that they stop in a town nearby. They stop, and you see there, uh, I have a map there, you can see where Jericho was, right by the, by the river and by the lake, which would explain why it was uh, below sea level, because that area was, and And they would travel to Jerusalem, which is up a hill. But as they came to, uh, before they came to Jerusalem, they stopped at a town. You can see, if you can make it clearly there, all the way over to uh, the right is the town of Bethany. They would have stopped in Bethany. It makes sense. It would have been a place they would rest. And actually, if you look at the, the circumstances of the last uh, week of Christ's life, he probably uh, would have traveled back to Bethany. It's even possible he would have stayed there every night. He had friends there. He knew people there. And so Bethany was a likely location to go for him to, to rest and rejuvenate before he would continue on. And so that is where he goes. The Scripture tells us he goes to Bethany. Bethany is about a two-mile Two miles east of Jerusalem and uh, would have been a place to dwell. Bethany was an important area because that's where his friend Lazarus was, who he'd raised from the dead. It's also likely at this time, while he's at Bethany, that Lazarus' sister came in and anointed his feet with oil. The scripture tells us about that in in one of the other gospels. So the next day comes along, and the next day is a Sunday. And he begins his final walk to Jerusalem. He comes to a place you see on the map there. If you look, uh, there's Bethpage, which is another town a little closer, and Bethpage is just on the edge of what's known as the Mount of Olives. And so Scripture tells us that he comes. If you look at verse 29, he drew near to these two little villages, and then he comes to the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And at this point, he he calls two of his disciples and he says, I have a special assignment for you, which we'll get into in a moment. But first of all, the Mount of Olives was a place of great significance. If you look in, in the Bible at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, it says, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and on the Mount of Olives shall and and the Mount of Olives shall be split into from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half shall move southward. This is a, a passage that refers to Christ's second coming, and it tells us there that there will come a day in the future, beyond now, when Jesus Christ will come again to the Mount of Olives, and when he does, the Mount of Olives will split in half at his coming. It's a significant location. Mount of Olives, if you look back, I'll go back there, if you look back there in Mount of Olives, I don't know if you can see it, but down from the Mount of Olives a little bit is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And that would have been just a few days after this where he would have gone and he would have prayed and he would have asked his disciples to pray. So it was a significant location. Acts chapter 1 and verse 12 uh, tell us that if you were to look there, Acts 1.12 tells us that when, when Jesus, after He died, after He rose again, He spent some time on earth, and then and the Bible tells us He ascended into heaven and He would have left from the Mount of Olives. So it was a significant location to Christ, and He comes to His disciples and He says something to them. If you look at, at uh, uh, Luke chapter 19, look at verse 30. So he brings these two disciples to us. We don't know who they are. We don't know if they're two of the twelve or if they're two of the multitude. They're two of his followers. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you, which would have been Bethpage. He says, go there and when you enter there, you will find a colt tied. says, on which no one has ever sat. It's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So they uh, are told this is what you should do. I mean, it's a very unusual command. Go into this town and you'll find a colt. And it sounds like he's telling them to steal it. But he says, if anyone comes and says, you know why are you taking it? Say to them, my Lord needs it. So what do they do? Look at verse 32. It tells us, and so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Jesus spells out for them very specifically what they're to do. Uh, Somehow, I think we know uh, how, but Jesus knew that this colt would be tied up. If you were to read Matthew, Matthew's account, Matthew tells us that there was the colt, but also its mother was with it. If you see in the passage there, it tells us in Matthew, and in, in Matthew the disciples are told bring both of them. And it was probably because the colt, this this young one, would have been very wild. As we see, it was told we were told that n- no one had ever ridden on it. So it wasn't trained, it wasn't broken, and so it probably would have been a little skittish and it would have been a little scared. And so possibly Jesus said, bring the mom and, and the colt with you so that the mom can kind of maybe keep the uh, colt calm. These animals were, were quite expensive. They were very important to the people of, of Israel. It would have been something they wouldn't have parted with very easily. It would have been, it would have been you know, something they would have uh, been a little hesitant about someone taking. I mean, imagine for a moment, if you would, that uh, uh, we, have, we have parked out in the front there, someone brought their Porsche. Anyone have a Porsche, by the way, that, we could, that I could borrow? <laughs> okay, but someone had their Porsche out there, and, and uh, you go out there, and you say, uh, you, you start uh, hopping in, and you start the Porsche, and the owner comes up and says, what are you doing? <laughs> this is my car. You say, well, sorry, our, our pastor has need of it. <laughs> The person probably wouldn't you know, take too kindly to that. Well, there was a custom in that day that a dignitary could procure property for, for personal reasons. It was something that the Romans did quite frequently, but uh, it would be like a president uh, or an important official coming and telling you, I need your car, and really, there's nothing you can do about it. Now that's the idea. Whether or not that's how the owner perceived it, we're not told. But the owner gave up his uh, animal. When the disciples were sent to get a colt, again, this is another fulfillment of a prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's pretty specific there. And Keep in mind, many of the followers that were following Jesus at this point were expecting the Messiah. They were expecting that this Messiah was coming in power to overthrow the Roman government. I mean, the one who just raised Lazarus from the dead... Surely He has enough power to overthrow the Romans. And as they had to obey the Romans, they, they were longing for the day when a warrior would come in on a warrior's horse, a white, powerful horse, and they were expecting that like David did when he would come in and he would wipe out the Philistines. They were expecting that, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was about to enter the city of David not as a warrior messiah who would physically conquer the Roman army, but as a prince of peace who would seek to conquer the hearts of the people. While the disciples that went and got this animal obeyed His command, I wonder what was going through their mind. I wonder how they were, what they were thinking about. They could have been amazed that once again, everything Jesus said would happen, happened. Or they could have wondered maybe what was going wrong here. You know, they were expecting, probably just like all of Israel, they were expecting that Jesus was going to be the Messiah and they were expecting that Jesus was going to reign as king. In fact, it's just. It's just a little bit time before this, maybe a few months, when the disciples are sitting around arguing, okay, who's going to be the greatest? And when we have this kingdom, who's going to sit on his right hand and who's going to sit on his left? And they're just arguing that. So even the disciples were probably expecting something other than this. And so maybe the disciples, as they're going and getting this colt, they're thinking, wait a second, this can't be right. Shouldn't we be going and getting a horse? But instead of ruling, the disciples... uh, uh, found something completely different. Instead of being on his right hand and the left, they found themselves running errands and going and getting a donkey instead of being in place of honor. But yet, they obeyed. They obeyed. Are we quick to obey as the disciples were, even when we don't understand what's going on? When you discover the clear commands of Scripture, do you follow them? Or do you falter? Do you, do, you do, do them because you know you're supposed to, or do you question them? I think a lot of times we question them. Determined to welcome the King, to greet the King with an obedient heart. As Jesus said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. As people today, are we greeting the King with our obedience? But the second thing I want to ask you, are we greeting the King with our things? Notice in this passage, there are three gifts that were given to Him on that day. The first one was the colt. The owner didn't seem to question the disciples at all. Maybe they had heard about Jesus. Maybe uh, they had heard that Jesus, who Jesus was, and maybe they were happy to give away their uh, their animal. They gladly gave him what rightly belonged to him anyway. I mean, the Bible tells us that as Creator, Jesus has right to possess everything, and that everything is His, and ultimately He owns all things. Someone once suggested that maybe the owners were laughing to themselves because they realized they had just given up a colt that had never been ridden. Maybe thought this would be quite a ride that this person would be taking on this colt. Who knows? But not only did this event fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah that we looked at a moment ago, but it was reminiscent of another journey. Just this week, in fact, I was reading First Kings, and as I was reading First Kings, it talked about uh, when Solomon became king, and, and uh, the way it happened was they were told, go and get a donkey, and he rode in on a donkey. So it would have been something that they would have experienced in the past, and so who knows what went through the mind of the owners, but they gave their, their donkey, their colt, willingly. Not only that, there was, there was other gifts. If you look in your Bible at verse 35, notice what it says there. And they brought it to Jesus, the colt, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as they rode, they spread their cloaks on the road. The second gift was their cloaks. The disciples took off their cloaks and, and they placed them on, on the donkey and, and they, as a saddle. And, and then they helped him get on. And the Bible says as they, were, as they were traveling down, as they began their journey, that they would place their, their cloaks on the road. They willingly gave up their outer garment. Now, I, I've said this before, but for a Jew, for the average Jew that wasn't rich... Okay, many of them, there was the, the cloak, which was the outer garment. There was the tunic underneath the tunic. Many of them had multiple tunics. It would have been something they would have had a lot of, but most of them only had one cloak. They wouldn't have had numerous ones because only the rich had more than one, and so they would have had only one, and it would have been something very valuable to them. So to, to, to give it would be a big deal and they willingly would take them off and, and allow not only Jesus to sit on it, but then someone would allow this animal to trample on it, and maybe others, and, and, and so because, because the, the entrance of the king was more important. Remember, the uh, donkey had never been ridden on before, and now Jesus was on His back, and the crowd was sh- shouting, and uh, they were laying cloaks down, and palm branches were being laid down as well. The Laying on the cloaks on the road would have been similar to something today that you know we talk about uh, for celebrities, and that is the red carpet. Why? Because they recognized Jesus as royalty. And they gave Him what royalty deserved. The third gift was, as I mentioned a moment ago, the palm branches. Luke doesn't mention this detail. You've got to remember that these Gospel writers all... Uh, handle things differently, Luke would have actually not been present, and so, as Luke wrote, would have been what what was given to him by, from someone else 's mouth of the details that took place. So it may have been Luke was uh, left that out, or Luke did not know about that, but Matthew tells us if you look at matthew twenty one eight it tells us that they were laying down branches. This was a very common way to to welcome a victorious king. We see one of the kings in in, in Israel was welcomed this way. And other kings would be, do the same when they re, would return from battle as they were coming back into the city. Many times they would rip down the palm branches and they would lay it down to show, uh, to show uh, their, their king, we're glad to have you back. And it was always, always a symbol of joy and victory. It was always a symbol of, 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 of a victorious moment. And uh, it, it was a sign of, of life. The gifts of the colts and the cloak and the branches all point to who Jesus was. What started out as a simple Jewish feast is now turning into a Messiah celebration. The colt was expensive. The cloaks were essential. The branches were expression of joy. The question is for us though, what do we give? What is it can we give? What can you give to, the, to worship your King today? Is He asking you to give something that's expensive? Is He longing for you to give something that you consider essential? Or, have you been holding out expressions of joy? If you want to welcome your King, if you want to greet your King, you can do so with gifts. Oh, there's nothing we can do to earn our way to heaven or to earn our way out of hell. And there's nothing we can do to impress Jesus Our giving demonstrates our love and adoration. And that's what these people were doing in their simple way, expressing their love and adoration. So we can greet the King with our obedience. We can greet the King with our things. And thirdly, we can greet the King with our praise. Notice, if you will, at verse 37. As He was drawing near. So imagine, if you will, for a moment, this event that's taking place. He's coming down the mount. And if you would come down, if I uh, went back to that map I show, showed you earlier, as you come down the mounts, there was what's called as, as the Kidron Valley. It was a, a deep valley and there was water that during the wet season would flow through it. And as they'd come down, Jerusalem would be up again on the hill and, and all of Jerusalem could, could look down if they wanted to and see them. And so the sight was spectacular. As they're coming down, it says in verse 37, Down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. The language suggests there that there's more than just the twelve. If we look at some of the other gospel writers, we get the idea that there is this this large multitude. And it may have been one of those that the multitude swelled as they went down. You know what I mean? I mean, you see a crowd and people come and go, what's the crowd here for? And, and, and the crowd grows and grows and At this point, there were many followers of Jesus as they went down the mountain, as they traveled down, and the city of Jerusalem comes into view, and I'm sure as it came into view, it got them even more excited. Here we go. Here we go. We're about to enter the city with the king. And the people broke out into spontaneous outpouring of praise. What's sad is that in just a few days, we'll celebrate Christ's death. And probably a lot of these people were the same people that were yelling out, crucify Him. But for now, they're shouting something different. What did they shout? Look, if you will, verse 38. It says, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This came from A quotation in Psalm 118 that says, very similar, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This phrase, uh, come in the name of the Lord, means that Jesus is coming according to His promise. This psalm here in Psalm 118 speaks of a coming Messiah and every year at the Passover feast, they would sing out this this praise to God in, in, in anticipation of a coming Messiah and they would sing that out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord waiting for the Messiah. And by singing this psalm, these followers were declaring that Jesus is the sent King who comes by the very authority of God. If you look at uh, at Matthew's um, view of this event, you will see in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, it says that they were also shouting Hosanna. It's interesting. You see the passage here in Psalm 119. Hosanna is a phrase that means save us now. It comes from this passage here as well. There was a feeling of celebration. There was a feeling of uh, exaltation. There was a feeling of adoration there was a feeling of anticipation of what was about to take place notice what happens next as the crowd is praising god loudly and they're they're proclaiming their love for god as was the case the pharisees weren't far behind if you look in the next verse that comes in verse 39 and some of the pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples the thought is that many times wherever Jesus went, there was Pharisees because they were trying to find a way to get him to stumble so they could have him crucified or killed. And so maybe that was the case, or maybe it was as the crowd came down, those in Jerusalem noticed the crowd and many came out to, to, to watch, and, and, and for whatever reason though, the Pharisees are there and, and the Pharisee comes up and says, "'Teacher, rebuke your disciples.'" They knew what the crowd was saying. They knew because they knew Psalm 118. They knew what what the crowd was saying is is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. And and so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, stand up and reject this claim. And they're claiming you to be King. Stand up and tell them they're wrong. These claims were so offensive to these religious leaders. And I, I love the answer that he gives. Look at verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He says to them, if the disciples do not speak, creation will. Just as Jesus was able to get on a colt that was wild and never been ridden and and apparently it was calm for Him, so we see here He can command inanimate objects like a rock to praise Him because He created them. Can you imagine how the Pharisees felt? Instead of rebuking the disciples, which is what they want, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. And notice how He does it. He says to them, hey, if these people don't sing, the rocks will. What is He saying to the Pharisees? He's telling the Pharisees, the rocks understand more than you do. I'm sure that must have angered them even more. And I have a question for you. How are you doing at greeting the king with praise? Scripture tells us that even the rocks desire to glorify God. Do you have moments in your schedule in which you stop and break out in adoration? Now, I don't mean, you know, you're in, you know, you're in Walmart and suddenly you stop and start singing cuz probably people would look at you kind of weird. But I mean, do you have moments in your day? Do you have times where you just stop and say, "God, you are so good." Do you start and end your day with praise and worship? When you come here on Sundays, is this uh, to worship God collectively with others? Is this a culmination of a week of personal worship? Or is this the only time all week you have praised God? Sadly, I think for many Christians, that's probably true. This is the only time all week where you've praised God. Are we people who are praising God or not? Not. God can make the stones cry out. But you know what he's telling the Pharisees? He would rather have men and women, boys and girls, who worship him completely. He would rather have us, his children, stand up and worship him with our voice, with our action, with our life. The question is, are we greeting our king with praise? And then finally, are we greeting the king with our faith what happens next is is really rather interesting as jesus makes his way down the mountain as he's making his way down the mountain he sees the entire city of jerusalem in front of him a panoramic view you know today you know we have phones that you can take a panoramic view but they don't do justice to an actual panoramic view he sees the city and the city would have been stunning jerusalem was a gorgeous city a beautiful city a And and they would have had uh, these buildings, these white shining buildings, the sun shining off off of them. Herod's temple was was a beautiful temple, overlaid uh, almost completely with gold, and so the gleam of the gold would have shined, and it would have just been a, a an amazing sight. And yet and yet Jesus saw it completely different. What he sees is something that was hard. Because He's coming into Jerusalem as He's surrounded by people who are singing His praises, giving Him His gifts, walking in obedience as He's surrounded by them. He's not coming into Jerusalem to be respected. He's not coming into Jerusalem to be praised. But He's coming into Jerusalem to be rejected. And to be killed. Take ourselves back to that moment again. And we see that His disciples are 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 celebrating Him and rejoicing and worshiping Him, sadly, the mood shifts to one of sadness. Look, if you will, at verse 41. And when He drew near and He saw the city, He wept. You know, we may be tempted to rejoice in Jesus' victory over the Pharisees, as I'm sure the disciples were. But Jesus didn't gloat. His interest was not winning an argument with the Pharisees. You know, we love when someone wins an argument, don't we? And Jesus just won a good one. And yet, that didn't cause him happiness. We see in that passage there, it says, he wept. The word wept in that passage, and actually... Uh, the passage when it talks about in John chapter 11 when, when Jesus came to, to raise Lazarus from the dead, the Bible tells us that He wept. Those are two different words. The wept in, in John chapter 11 is, a, is a, 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 a crying. But this weep here is something different. This weep here is the idea of burst into tears, to weep out loud, to sob uncontrollably. Uh, And and this word, I think, says it all. It's the idea of to wail. A few years ago, we went, uh, the youth group and myself and some of the adults went to Romania for a mission trip. We're going back there this summer. When we were there, there happened to be one of the members of the church had passed away. And so not all of us were able to go, but a couple of our young people were able to go with Tim Fink to the funeral. Their funerals last quite a while. But they came back and the teens, uh, and I don't remember which two it was, um, but the teens came back and they said that uh, it, was, it was something they had never seen before. Because in the gypsy culture that, um, that they were go- going to this funeral, in the gypsy culture, it was, it was a sign of, of complete sorrow to purposely wail. And so they said that they would go and the... the, the, the Wife of the person who died would just be, just be wailing as loud as she could and just screaming and throwing her body all over the place. And, and they said it was kind of funny because here they are and she's crying and she's screaming and then all of a sudden her cell phone rings. And she picks up her cell phone and, hello? Well, whatever it is in uh, Gypsy. But, and stops, immediately stops crying. That's not what Jesus was doing here. This is a lament, a sadness. This was more than just a tear streaming down his face. This is more than just a little sadness. This is this is a a, a heart that is so broken while everyone else is I mean, picture this for a moment, while everyone else is shouting for joy and singing the praises of of Jesus and, and the expectation of the coming king Jesus was broken because of the hard hearts of the people. And Jesus was not weeping because He was going to die and suffer. Jesus was not weeping for Himself. He was weeping for the lost. He wants people to exhibit faith and trust in Him as the Savior and as the Lord. He wants this so much that He broke out into this loud wailing when the people chose to go their own way. Scripture tells us three specific times when Jesus uh, cried. At the death of Lazarus, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus cried, but those were tears of sympathy. Sympathy for his disciples, that they didn't have enough faith, but sympathy for the people who, who had lost a loved one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in a few days uh, after this, the, the Bible tells us he cried and, and, he, and he cried and, and he wept, and, and it talks about the, the drops of blood, and those were tears of anguish. And that was a personal thing, that he was crying of, "Lord, if there's any way, there's another way." But these are tears of sorrow. He's broken and He's sad for the people. And as Jesus stands there and He looks out over Jerusalem, there's this deep sobbing and wailing, almost to the point of choking up, He cries out something. Notice what He cries out, if you will. Look at verse 42. Saying, Would that you, and that you is Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He says to them, you've missed it but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, you Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus, throughout his three years of ministry, had offered salvation to his own people. But for the most part, they had rejected it. As a result, they had lost out on real peace. Peace. See, they wanted something different. They wanted Jesus to come in and with a physical force, they wanted Jesus to tear down the people and destroy the Romans and reign. But Jesus said that's not it. Jesus looks at the future and He sees some really bad things in store for the people of Jerusalem. And He sees what's going to take place. And His chilling prophecy became reality not long after this. 70 A.D. history tells us that a ruler by the name of Titus came in with legions of Roman soldiers and they surrounded, as it says in that passage, as Jesus prophesied, they surrounded them. They besieged the city and they, they built up embarkments so no one could escape. No one could go in. No one could come out. And there was a, they, were, they besieged the city for 143 days. And then they went in uh, history tells, excuse me, that they turned Jerusalem into a pile of rocks. The temple was destroyed completely, was set on fire, in fact, Titus had no desire to do this. Uh, I was reading about this this week, and, and Titus' desire was he was actually didn't want to do that, but the men in their excitement set fire to everything, and, and the fire just overwhelmed the temple and it destroyed the temple. Josephus, a uh, historian, claims that because of what happened there, 1.1 million Jews were killed. And all of this took place because they did not recognize Jesus coming. Because they did not recognize, at the end of verse 44 it says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, you did not know why I came. There's a very clear principle here in these words that are mixed with the tears of Jesus to us. If you and I do not recognize God's coming in the form of the Lord Jesus and put our faith in him, then we're going to be exposed, just like to the people of uh, Jerusalem, we're going to be exposed to judgment. If we reject Christ, we will pay the consequences. This does not bring Jesus any pleasure. In fact, it breaks him up, it brings him pain. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew because He was God, and He knew it was going to take place just a matter of 60 or so years later. He knew it was going to take place, and because of that, it choked Him up about the things that were going to happen. But two things I want you to notice about, about this last part of this story that should motivate us to a faith in Christ. Number one, His tears reveal His heart of compassion. His tears reveal his heart of compassion. Romans tells us this, Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God loves you. God is gracious with you. And if you're here today and and you have not accepted the goodness of God, then, then you should know that He loves you so much. But His kindness isn't just something we look out and go, Oh, that's nice. He says our kindness could cause us to repent. To acknowledge our sin. To turn from our sin. And to turn to Christ. His tears should reveal His heart of compassion. But secondly, the coming terror should reveal His holiness. Because here's the thing about Christ. As He stood there and wept over the city. And cried because he knew that one day this city, this beautiful city, was going to be destroyed. There was nothing he could do about it. Because his holiness demanded punishment. And the same thing is true today for us is that Jesus knows that That because of God's holiness, God tells us that His holiness demands punishment for sin. And so there is nothing that can stop the punishment of God. And that should motivate us to repent. Because the reality is, is, there was only one thing that could escape, that we can rely on to escape the punishment, and that is what Jesus is going to do in just a few short days and that is take our punishment so if his love and compassion doesn't motivate you maybe you'll be motivated to repent because of a terror of a coming judgment because there is a judgment coming. So the question I have for you in closing is which one is going to spur you? Which one is going to motivate you to greet the Lord with obedience, to greet the Lord with our things, to greet the Lord with our praise, and to greet the Lord with our faith? Are you motivated? Or are you just like these Jews that many of them, in just a few days after this, that were standing there saying, uh, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Hosanna! In just a few st- short days, they're going to say, "Crucify him," because they did not see him as a coming Savior. They saw him as something completely different. Many people are going to miss who Christ was. Have you? Let's pray. God, we are so incredibly thankful for what Jesus Christ did for us. God, as I stand here this morning, every time I think about Christ's death on the cross, I am reminded it was for me. That, God, you're holiness and your justice demands that I spend eternity in hell. That your holiness and your justice demand that I be punished, but yet your love demanded that something be offered as an alternative. And that was the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will help us this week as we focus on what Christ did for us on the cross. Lord, help us over and over again to be reminded of that Lord, if there's any here have not accepted the gift of salvation that You offer, that You and alone can offer because of what Your Son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross, if there's any that haven't accepted that, Lord, I pray that they'll be motivated to do that today, that they'll have faith in You. And Lord, for those of us who have, I pray that You will help us to continue to greet You constantly with our obedience, with our possessions, with our praise, and with our faith. We will serve You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.